Let's, let's uh, continue with our series that we started a few weeks ago, What We Believe. And today, what we believe, we believe the Bible. In fact, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, someone asked the famous theologian Karl Bard, what, what's the deepest truth that you have ever discovered? And he thought about it for a moment, and he said, I think the deepest truth I've ever discovered is Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so. Pretty profound. Um, so we all know that song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, and, and, and it's kind of profound that, that uh, it says really so much. Um, I don't know if you knew it or not, but Stony Brook is, we might consider ourselves an evangelical church. Uh, uh, what does that mean? What does it mean if you're an evangelical church? Well, basically, it's a word that we use uh, for a church that believes that the Bible is our authority and really our only authority. Uh, that is what we rely on for everything we do, our faith and our practice. Um, uh, we don't seek guidance from uh, some kind of church governing uh, rules and regulations or creeds. Uh, you know, our everything we understand and believe, we try to follow just the Bible and the Bible only. So that's, that's one way to look at an evangelical church. Um, the Bible teaches that Christianity is not just some religious system of rules that you follow. Uh, it's, it's the humble worship of the person, Jesus Christ. Uh, so you've heard the, the expression, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a, it's a way of life. And I think that's very true. You and I are saved, not because we followed some rules of a religion, uh, not because we did good things. We are saved by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that. The Bible, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the reason we know he loved us. But how do we know that the Bible is true? Um, uh, what if the Bible is just a bunch of stories that people made up? What if it's just an, a collection of old legends that somebody handed down, like uh, some, some religious books are? Um, what if it's full of misinformation and disinformation? We hear a lot about that, don't we, in the news today? Uh, what if the Bible is just, uh, there's a bumper sticker that's out there that says that religion, the, great, the greatest misinformation uh you might say christian some people might think christianity the greatest misinformation or the bible the great but what if it what if that's true what if it's just none of it's true are, are we to accept the bible just by blind faith because our mama told it was told us it was true uh do do we as christians commit intellectual suicide when we regard the bible as our guide for life there's a lot of people that think that Bill Maher and other celebrities out there would, would say, yeah, you're just foolish to believe the Bible because it's just a bunch of made-up stories. Um, people have some interesting ways of trying to understand life and figure out, why am I here? What's it all about? Some people, uh, for example, believe that when you die, if you're good, you, you come back in a higher level. You know, maybe you're a king or a president or a senator or something, a celebrity. But if you're bad, you come back as something less, like a tree or a cow or something like that. And if you ask somebody, many people, well, you know, how, how did you come to that belief? And they might say, I don't know, it just kind of made sense to me. <laughs> just kind of made sense to me, stuff like that. A lot of people base their life on, well, that, I don't know, that kind of made sense to me. Uh, people are willing to entertain some bizarre ideas. Uh, but at the same time, they have difficulty, you know, they'll, they'll believe that I'll come back as a cow, but they have, a difficult, they have difficulty accepting that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Basically, today, the world's divided into to a couple of different people. Uh, those who believe that God communicated with us through the Bible, and those who just are searching for truth somewhere else, you know, the, the, the sun, the moon, the nature a lot of people say my bible is, is going out in the woods and staring at the trees you know um 
This morning, I, I want to share with you some reasons why we as Christians can be confident that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, Steve pointed out a truth in Sunday school. You know, do we have to prove that the Bible is real? Well, we believe the Bible is real, and we don't have to prove it. But as we see in Scripture and today, you know, God gave a lot of signs and reasons why the people should believe. The, the apostles spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost. Jesus performed miracles and raised people from the dead. Um, and he, he could have just said, I'm the Son of God, just believe it. Uh, but, and some people might have, but a lot of people wouldn't have. So he, had, he proved he was the Son of God by performing miracles. Oh, okay, now, now you got my attention. You just raised that guy from the dead. Uh, you just spoke in a language you'd never studied before. And so I think the same thing is true today. Yes, the Word of God is, the Bible is the Word of God, but some people need a little bit more to, to entertain that idea. And, and thankfully, there's, there is a lot of information out there and, and, and things that can help us have even more faith that the Bible is the Word of God. So let's begin with some basic facts about the Bible. The Bible is a library of 66 books. Um, it was written by about 40 different authors uh, over the course of history, uh, over a period of about 1,500 years. Uh, uh, it began, it was, it, it, the, the writings began around 1400 B.C. and was concluded around 100 A.D. with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so think about this. Can you imagine a book of medicine written over the last 1500 years? Think about what would be in that book. There'd be everything from bloodletting, <laughs> bleeding like they did with George Washington, uh, or to blood transfusions. Uh, how about a book about science? You know, there would be uh, uh, in over a 1,500-year period. You know, at the beginning, they would talk about how the world was flat, and by the end, we, we discovered that the world is round, and so it would be a lot of of new discoveries and, and, and things in, in books like that. But, but when you look at the Bible, you don't see it that way. You don't see that at all. Uh, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year period, and there is a consistency and an accuracy about it that you would not see in any other book written over that same period of time. The Bible touches on both scientific and historical truth and has credibility in both of them. In both of them. The Bible is very much about science and about history and about religion. The Bible is a library of books and it's divided into two sections the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's read uh, uh, a passage that Paul wrote in Colossians that sort of talks about the difference between the two for Christians. He said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that are against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, the written code, nailing it to the cross. Now, in that passage, there's a discussion about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's, let's look at it a little bit. In looking at the Bible, we need to understand that there is an Old Testament or an old will and a New Testament or a new will or new covenant. Uh, we understand wills, right? Most of or a lot of us have wills. You know, when, when I pass away, this is what's going to happen with all my stuff. Uh, let's say that you have a rich uncle. How many of us have a rich uncle? You don't have to raise your hand, but uh, I don't have one. Uh, let's say you have a rich uncle, and, but he didn't really know you in the early years, right? He, he, he kind of knew of you, but he didn't really know you very well. So you weren't even included in his will um, uh, in, in when you were younger. But later, you, you decided, I need to get to know old Uncle Bill because uh, he's got a lot of money. And so, so you, you went, start, visited him, and you, you, you got to know him, and, and he, he came to know you, and he came to love you. And, and to, your, to your satisfaction, he decided, you know what, I'm going to add you to my will now. To, and I'm going to make a new will. I'm going to add you to it now. Uh, you're going to get $500,000 when I pass away. Wow. That, uh, it, it, so when Uncle Bill dies, which will goes into effect? The old one or the new one? 
Well, it's the new one, right? It's, it's, the old one's no good anymore. It's still there, but it doesn't have any, any uh, power anymore. The new one is the one that will go by, so you're going to get your $500,000. So praise God for that second will for you. Um, same thing with God. God has two, had two wills through the course of history, uh, an old one and a new one. Um, you and I, when the old one was in effect before Jesus, you and I were not in that will. In fact, really, no one was because the only way that you could inherit anything from that will is if you followed all the rules in it perfectly. Every single one of them, the Ten Commandments, all of them. If, if you followed them all absolutely perfectly, your entire life, never mis making one single mistake ever, then you would inherit eternal life. But nobody could do that. Nobody could do that. Everybody broke at least one law one time in their life, and then it was canceled, and, and it was no good. So you and I were not in the, the old will, and even though the Jews were kind of under it, they weren't going to be able to, to benefit from it either because they weren't perfect. And so it was, it was canceled on them. So, as that scripture in Colossians said, Jesus took that old will and he nailed it to the cross uh, in the form of himself. He nailed all those rules and regulations to the cross, uh, and then he gave us a new will. Gave all mankind a new will, or a new covenant would be another word we could use. And here's the new will. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. No rules, no rules to follow. No, no regulations to, to have to adhere by. No, no demand to be perfect anymore. Uh, just put your faith in Jesus Christ, who was perfect, and gave his life as a sacrifice, and you'll be saved. That's the new covenant. That's the new will. So you and I, as Christians, are not under the old will or the old covenant. We're under the new will. And sometimes, sometimes uh, we might refer to ourselves as a, a New Testament church uh, or a new will church and that's the reason um, the Old Testament is still valuable we we study it we learn a lot about it we learn about those characters that are in there all the mistakes and the good things that they did we learn from them uh, we learn how the new will came about from the old will where, where did it come from what was what was the plan that God had and so when we read about the history of the nation of Israel we learn about how he brought us Jesus in the end. But we get, we as Christians get our authority from the new will, the New Testament. And so that's, that's you know, what we need to focus on uh, more than anything else. So let's talk about the Bible um, and, and, and especially the New Testament. The Bible claims to be the word of God. The Bible claims to be the word of God. Let's look at some scriptures that are a scripture that talks about that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is God-breathed, Paul wrote to Timothy. What does that mean, God-breathed? Uh, does it mean God dictated? Uh, you know, if you were to go back in a time machine and find Paul while he was in prison in Rome and, and went up and you saw him writing some things down and you looked over his shoulder and you said, hey, Paul, what are you writing there? W would he say, uh, I don't know. My hand's just going. As, I don't know. God's making my hand write stuff and I don't, you know, I don't even know what it is. Is, is that the way God... Uh, did scripture uh, is that what God breathed mean no I don't think that's what, what that's what that means at all because as we look at the authors of the Bible we see that in every one of them you see their style their personality their memory um, you know their wisdom um, but at the same time we we understand as we will we look at other scripture that God's spirit did guide them he didn't dictate to them and make them write whatever they wrote but he 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 guided them in re reminding them of things they needed to remember and 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 suggesting things to them and helping them uh, write the things that they did second peter 1 20 and 21 suggests the same thing above all you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's 
own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was very much involved in each of the author's writings, guiding them, but not dictating every single word that they wrote. Uh, remember what Jesus told his disciples before he died. He said, I- I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And John 16, 30, 13 says, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so we understand and we believe that uh, from these scriptures that, that God did guide people to write down what he wanted, the, the ideas and the, and the thoughts that he wanted them to write. At the same time, they were able to do it in their way uh, with, with, with their thoughts. Uh, it's only logical to think that if God made us, wouldn't he want to accurately communicate with us? Would it make sense that he wouldn't? Wouldn't the God of creation want somehow to help us understand who he is and what he wants? That makes sense. You know, a father, think about a father, an earthly father, doesn't he want to communicate with his children um, to, uh, to teach them how to live, how to love, um, to tell his children? You know, don't you dads want to tell your children and make sure they understand that you love them? And what do we call a dad who doesn't do that, who abandons his children? We call him a deadbeat dad, right? Because dads don't, good dads don't do that. Good dads hang in there with, with their children and they, they bring them up and they teach them, they communicate with them. And our Heavenly Father, certainly the perfect Father, does the same thing. If God is our creator, isn't it natural to assume that he, he's going to want to communicate with us and show us the way? Um, and that's exactly what happened when, when uh, Jesus came down to earth. He not only wrote to us from the, in the Old and New Testament, but he actually came to earth, became a human being, communicated us with those who were alive at that time face-to-face, taught them face-to-face, and then he, he provided for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to then record uh, what happened. How he came, what he talked about, what he did. Um, because God wanted to accurately let us know what it was all about, who he was, and what his will was. It makes sense, doesn't it? And we see that in Scripture. That's why Revelation 22, 18 and 19, at the very end of the Bible, says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, the book of Revelation, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a pretty bold statement from God through, as he spoke through John, who wrote the book of Revelation. All right, don't mess with this. I'm I'm setting what my communication is like I want it, don't mess with it. Leave it like it is. We, we as Christians need to then, because it's the word of God, God communicating to us, he said it like he wanted it to be said, we need to become familiar with the word of God. We need to become familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament, but especially the New Testament as Christians. Um, for one, one reason we need to do it is so that when we're in, we're in a Sunday school class and the teacher says, all right, let's everybody turn to Colossians chapter 3, you don't have to go to the index to figure out where the Colossians is. Is that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Uh, so you could easily uh, find, find places in the Bible when the teacher says, but even more important than that, uh, you know, the Bible is called our one offensive weapon as Christians. And we need to be familiar with our offensive weapon to live in this world. You know, I, you've seen movies where, uh, like Forrest Gump and others, where uh, a soldier is, uh, is learning to disassemble his, his weapon and then put it back together. Seems like, didn't, didn't he do that blindfolded Forrest Gump? I know he did it really fast compared to uh, what was it, Bubba. Uh, but, um, 
but uh, soldiers learn how they're, they're so familiar with their rifle uh, that they can disassemble it and put it back together really fast, maybe even blindfolded. Uh, they're taught to be familiar with it. Well, as Christians, we need to do the same thing. We need to be so serious about following God that we are experts. We, we want to become more and more expert at God's word, our offensive weapon. The Bible says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's our one, every, everything else like faith and hope and all those things, righteousness are all defensive weapons, but the, the word of God is the one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. So we need to become familiar with it. So how do we know? Okay, that's all well and good. You know, uh, we all believe that, uh, hopefully. Uh, but we, probably, we might know some people out there uh, in our life that if we said all that, they're going, well, how do you know that? So what? Um, I mean, anybody could say that about anything. How do we know that the books of the New Testament are accurate, especially the books of the, of the New Testament? How do we know they are accurate? Well, Josh McDowell, uh, in his little book uh, entitled More Than a Carpenter, some of you may have read that, but it's a great little book, points out that there are three criteria to determine if a book, an old book, is an accurate book. So we're going to look at three different tests that we're going to apply to the Bible that can help us understand, hey, this is real, this is accurate, this is authentic. The first test is this, the bibliographical test. The bibliographical test. Um, uh, testing the manuscript evidence. And when you, when you see the word manuscript, that means handwritten. There were no printing presses back in the first century and beyond that, before that. Um, uh, there were manuscripts. So uh, every copy that was made had to be hand copied. What, what is the, uh, the evidence that we can trust the manuscripts that we have from ancient times? Um, the, the authenticity of the copies that we have. We don't have the original copies of Paul uh, or Peter or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I, I, some, somebody asked me one day, where's the, the original Bible? Do you know where that is? Where's the original Bible? And, it, you know, there is no original Bible. Uh, we have a, a, a collection of or a canon of copies of the Bible. How can we trust the copies? Well, McDowell points out, a couple of things. First, he, he points out the guy Aristotle. Remember, you've heard of Aristotle? Um, Aristotle wrote poetics, and he wrote them around 343 B.C. Um, now, 343 BC, B.C., you know, the earliest copies we have of Aristotle's poetics is dated nearly 1,400 years after that, around 1100 A.D., so... The oldest copy of Aristotle's Poetics uh, is 1,400 years removed from the original one, okay? That's the oldest one we have, 1100 A.D. Uh, and we only have five copies, manuscripts of Aristotle's Poetics. Yet, uh, scholars would not even hesitate. Oh, yeah, that's Aristotle's book. Yeah, that's, that's his work. 1,400 years removed, only five copies. Caesar composed his history of the Gaelic Wars between 58 and 50 B.C. Uh, its manuscript authority rests on nine or ten copies of it dating a thousand years after his death. Okay, Nine or ten copies of Caesar's history of the Gaelic Wars. And the oldest copy we have of it is a thousand years removed from the original one that Caesar wrote. Yet, uh, most scholars will say, yep, those are, that's Caesar's uh, history of the Gaelic Wars. That's not, a, not an issue. Now, when it comes to manuscript authority of the New Testament, the contrast is overwhelming compared to other historical old books that we have in, in existence. We have over 20,000 old manuscripts and bits of manuscripts dating back to less than 100 years after Christ. So 
for the New Testament, we have copies of the Old Testament, the, the New Testament, the New Testament. We have copies of the New Testament that aren't, that are only a few years from the original, from the original, just a few, less than a hundred years. Many of them, many of them. A book called Eyewitness to Jesus, Amazing New Manuscripts Evidence About the Origins of the Gospels, published in 1996, tells about three pieces of Matthew's gospel uh, that have been held at Magdalen College in Oxford, England. It's about some experts in papyrus study who have started to test those manuscripts and discovered that they date all the way back to 50 A.D. Copies of the Gospel of Matthew that are dated back to 50 A.D. Now, Jesus died around 33 A.D., less than 20 years. Now, that, that's astonishing because, uh, you know, liberal scholars have always said, well, the, the oldest manuscripts we have are 100 A.D. Um, and Matthew quotes Jesus as predicting the fall of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 A.D. And nobody can predict the future, so we know that Matthew didn't really write this. And it had to be written after 70 A.D. Somebody looked back and said, well, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. Let's, let's write like we knew it was going to happen. All right, that's what liberal scholars would say. But the testing of these fragments of Matthew's gospel have revealed that they were two decades before the fall of Jerusalem. So they did predict it. Matthew did predict it. And it's evidence that it was predicted before it happened from these manuscripts. On Christmas Eve of 1994, the Times of London reported on its front page, this provides the first material evidence that the gospel, according to St. Matthew, is an eyewitness account written by the co contemporaries of Christ. It means that the people in the story must have been around when this was being written. It means they were there. They were there. You know, uh, this book is pretty heavy uh, that, that uh, was written. But, but illustrates that there are people that are a whole lot smarter in this field than, than I am and most of you are who believe, some really smart people who've done a lot of study in this area, they believe that the manuscript evidence verifies the reliability of the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am going to preserve this. See, I think the, the, the difference between Caesar's writing and Aristotle's writing and the Bible is obvious. God miraculously has preserved his word for us because we need to know it. We need to believe it. And the evidence proved, just like the evidence of miracles proved who Jesus was, the evidence of the preservation of the Bible proves that it's reliable and that it is the Word of God. Uh, so the first test was the bibliographical test. The second test that uh, uh, McDowell talked about was the internal test. The internal test. This is test, the test of, of the book's content itself. You know, it sort of proves itself. Uh, over history. Uh, the Bible shows that, that it's reliable, for one thing, because of prophecy. Prophecy. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 7 uh, says, Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Right? None, of us, none of us can predict the future, right? That's true. Uh, some people try, the weathermen, try to, uh, to predict the future, and sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. They're just... They're, they're, it's an educated guess, right? It's an educated guess. And, uh, you know, hurricanes coming, and 10 days out, you see all those lines going everywhere, you know. Uh, and then the, the closer and closer it gets, they can narrow it down, but, but they can't predict exactly. How about uh, pollsters in election time? Well, they're really good, aren't they? Uh, 
they, uh, they get that right every time. But no, they don't because they can't predict the future. They can give us an educated guess, maybe, of, of how it might turn out. But nobody can predict the future. Um, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this, I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient time, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So God is, is, is saying... Maybe you can't predict the future, but I can. I can. Because I made I make the future, I make the past, I made this universe. I can do it. And so the scripture does that. Because God did it through the writers. In Ezekiel chapter twenty six, the Bible predicts that the city of Tyre would be destroyed. And and God said in verse four four and five, I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. And out uh, in the sea, she will become a place to spread fishnets, the city of Tyre. Well, if you know anything about the city of Tyre, uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, after, uh, hundreds of years after that was written, in 33 B.C., Alexander the Great came and leveled the city of Tyre. And all the people, or a lot of the people, escaped to this little island that was a few hundred yards off of the shore there. And so they, they were safe out there for a little while, but, but Alexander Great, you know what he did? He took the rubble of the city that he had destroyed and built a causeway out to that island and captured everybody on it. You know what? I looked it up and I saw some pictures. That causeway's still there. It's still there. And today, that causeway is used by fishermen to dock their boats and spread their fishnets. Uh, exactly the way the Bible had predicted. Um, Think about all the predictions of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah uh, that, that we read about. Um, we know the, the, those Old Testament predictions were written long, long before Jesus w was born and came to earth. Um, and we know that because in 1947, and this is one of the greatest things ever found about that proves scripture, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered uh, near the Dead Sea. Uh, and they are the oldest Old Testament Old Testament manuscripts that we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And through carbon dating, uh, carbon-14 testing, it has been determined that they, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written hundreds of years before Christ. Hundreds of years before Christ. There is a complete copy of the book of Isaiah among them. And yet those Old Testament scriptures say that a Messiah is coming, that will be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He would be called Emmanuel. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would be executed between thieves. They would cast lots for his garments. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. He would rise from the dead. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies written in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Prophecies about Jesus, that Jesus himself fulfilled now listen to this Aaron's not in here but he's a mathematician mathematician Peter Stoner a Christian writer who who was head of the math department at Pasadena City College said that the odds of eight of those predictions about Jesus coming true accidentally in one person are one in ten to the hundred and fifty seventh power now what is that I don't know but we'll, we'll take his word for it uh, that's 1 over 10 with 156 zeros behind it. I'll just have to take this guy's word for that. Um, and to illustrate that, here's how we illustrated it. How, what the odds are of that. He said, you take the, the, the state of Texas and you fill the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. So you know how big the state of Texas is. And, and, and you take one of those silver dollars and you put an X on it. And you just toss it in the middle of Texas. And then you mix it all up. You mix it all up. And then you parachute a guy in the middle of Texas, blindfolded. And he reaches down and he grabs a silver dollar. The odds of him picking up that one silver dollar with the X on it are, are exactly about the same as one person, Jesus Christ, accidentally fulfilling all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Again, I'll have to take this guy's word for it, but you know, that's, that's pretty steep odds, isn't it? 
the Bible's prophecies are true. That's an inter- part of the internal test. Uh, another part of the internal test is its purpose is accomplished. Its purpose is accomplished. Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is, so is my word that goes out from my mouth it will not return to me empty, will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The word of God fulfills its purpose, not just some poetry that just entertains us. It has a purpose. Um, There's something about uh, this book that still changes lives, isn't it? That still changes lives. It has a purpose. And the purpose is to change lives. Charles Colson, some of you remember him, said that even though he was a special counsel to President Nixon at age 40, there was still something missing from his life. He went to visit a friend whose name was Tom Phillips. Uh, and he said, you know, I wasn't with Tom for 10 minutes when I realized that there was something different about Tom. He said, hey, Tom, what's going on? What, what has changed in your life? And Tom said, well, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. Well, Colson said that I tried to appear unimpressed, but what Phillips didn't know was when I left, I could barely drive out of the driveway because my eyes were filled with tears. He said, I determined for myself uh, that, that I've got to decide if this is true, this thing about Jesus and the Bible. So he took, Charles Colson took a vacation, and he took with him the Bible and C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which is a book that Phillips gave him, and a legal notepad. He said, I I divided the legal notepad in half and started reading the Bible. And he put the pros on one side and the cons on the other of this legal pad. And he said, when I finished, the evidence for Jesus Christ being the Son of God and the Bible being true was overwhelming. He said, I gave my life to Christ. And it was after that that Colson confessed his role in Watergate and went to prison. And he said, even in prison, I was freer than I ever had been before. Free from the guilt of sin. And when he was released, he dedicated his life, and many of you remember, to prison ministry. I remember hearing him speak at the North American one year. What changed Charles Colson's life? It was the word of God fulfilling its purpose in changing lives. What changed the infamous atheist Madeline Madeline Murray O'Hara's son, Bill Murray, to not only become a Christian, but to become a preacher? The word of God changed his life. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart you ever come to church and you've been down or depressed or uh and, and when you got here you didn't even, you didn't even want to come somebody talked into it or the holy spirit pushed you out of your, out of your bed and into the car and you got here and you worshiped or you, or you sat in the class or you heard the sermon and and something lifted you Something made you feel better. You know, uh, uh, you, you come to church and you've been discussing th- something or something happened during the week. Maybe you've been struggling with something, some decision you need to make. Um, and then something said in a class or in a message or even in a song. And it, everything just came clear. Oh, that's what I need to do. That's what I need to do. Uh, maybe, you, have you ever thought, you know, Mark, you got to have my house bugged because you're, you're, that's just what I needed to hear, what you just said today. I've, I've heard some of you not say that your house was bugged, but, you know, that's, that's, because I don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, I learned my lesson. No, but, uh, you know, I've, you say, I've heard some of you say that before. I've had people uh, come to me and say, did you preach that sermon for me? 
No, I never do that. I never do that. But the Word of God has a purpose and it convicts our hearts. Um, uh, e- even, uh, you know, e- even when we don't think it will. It does. The truth is God's Word is able to pen- penetrate the thoughts and intent of the heart. It's a living book that can convict and change your life. It accomplishes its purpose. Its facts are accurate when we think about the internal test. Its facts are evidence. You examine the Bible and you're overwhelmed at how accurate it is. Again, compared to a medical book in 1,500 years. The first part of it is not very accurate, is it? (laughs) It's barbaric. Um, But that's not true about the Bible. It's accurate. Throughout it, it's accurate. Some people say, I don't believe the Bible because it contradicts itself. You ever heard anybody say that? I certainly have. Um, there aren't many supposed contradictions, but there are some that might think it's, you might think it's a, comp- a, comp- a contradiction. But so many of them, most of them can be explained by understanding things like geography or tradition or custom of that time in history. Um, so here's an example. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. All right, that's Luke's account, or Mark's account of that story. Now, here's Luke's account of the same story, Luke 18, 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, Mark says, as they were leaving Jericho, Jesus met Bartimaeus. Luke says, as they entered Jericho, he met Bartimaeus. You know, it's a minor thing, but people look at that and say, well, (laughs) there you go. Contradiction. You know, those people can't get their story straight. Well, all right. Um, Again, there aren't many of these so-called contradictions, but the more we discover about customs and archaeology and geography, um, many things like this are explained. For example... It has been discovered through archaeology that there are two Jerichos. There were two Jerichos during that time. There was an old Jericho and a new Jericho. And the ground between the two was a place where people gathered. People gathered. So Jesus could easily be leaving old Jericho and meet Bartimaeus before he entered new Jericho. And so there is an explanation for uh, how that those two accounts are different. Um, some supposed contradictions can be explained simply by putting the pieces together. Um, an example, Matthew 27, 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Straight and simple. Acts 1, verse 18. Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Yummy. Um, all right, there's a contradiction there. Or Judas hanged himself, or did he just fall off a cliff and, and burst all over the ground? I mean, you know, what, what, what's the story here? Well, both of them are true. Both of them are true. He, he bought this land and hung himself on that land, and his body hung there. Let me get real descriptive here. His body hung there and just decayed and decomposed until it got so heavy and the rope broke, and then, you know, he fell on the rocks. Um, so the two explanations don't contradict each other. Uh, they describe it from different angles, depending on the two writers. The fact is, you know, wouldn't we be suspicious at a, in a court of law if you had two witnesses and they said the exact same thing using the exact same words? What would we say? We'd say, well, they, did, they got together on that. They got together on that. No, no. Um, when you see witnesses, you, you don't want them to exact, use the exact same words and say the exact same thing. You want to see it from their perspective. Uh, and that's what we have with the four Gospels. Um, we, we, we have four guys who tell the same story from their perspective, uh, from their point of view, from their angle. Uh, and that enhances the story. It doesn't undermine it at all. So that's the internal test. And the final test is the external test. The external test. Uh, John Boston recently gave me a, a really cool book. This is not it. <laughs> uh, 
but he gave me a, a book of Josephus that belonged to his uncle David. Okay, uh, and it's be- it, was, it was like uh, published in the, the 1890s. It's beautiful. It's at home. I meant to bring it today, but here's a, a more modern copy of it. Josephus, um, uh, Flavius Josephus, who was born in A.D. 37. Uh, he was a first-century uh, Jewish historian, uh, and in his Jewish Antiquities, which is what this is, um, he refers to, now he's not a Christian, he's not an advocate of Christianity, he's just a historian of the first century, okay? In his book, he refers to Jesus Christ. Um, uh, he, he writes this, Annas convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ and certain others. That's in Antiquities, book 20, verse 200. Um, Josephus understood and believed and knew, because he, he was A.D. 37, he was born, so he was right there when, when he was writing. He knew people who knew Jesus, um, wrote that there was a person named Jesus, that he had a brother named James. <laughs> uh, Tassadus, in A.D. 112, referred to Jesus. He said, Christus was put to death by Pontius Pilate. All right, so we've, and there are many other first century and second century his, historians outside of the Bible who testify uh, that Jesus was real, that, that the story of Jesus was true. There's also in external uh, evidence or tests, there's archaeological verification. You you remember when Pharaoh ordered the Israelites to make bricks without straw? Um, They, well, they've discovered through archaeology in Egypt a wall where the bottom part of the wall was normal bricks with straw. The middle part of the wall was made with bricks and stubble. And the top part of the wall was made with bricks with no straw. So there's an example of that story in real life discovered by archaeologists. The U.S. News and World Report had an article, New Finds Cast Fresh Light on the Bible. The subheadline reads, From Mount Sinai to the Dead Sea, examination of historical artifacts is revealing surprises about the origins of religious beliefs. A wave of archaeological discoveries is altering old ideas about the roots of Christianity and Judaism and confirming that the Bible is more historically accurate than many scholars thought. For example, until recently, most scholars dismissed the biblical cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as legendary, as myth, because there was no evidence anywhere outside of the Bible that Sodom and Gomorrah were real. But now two highly regarded American archaeologists believe they have found the remains of these cities plus three other settlements referred to in Genesis as the cities of the plains. The ruins are where the Bible indicated that they would be within a few miles of the Dead Sea. Moreover, at least three of the cities appear to have been destroyed by fire, which the Bible says was rained down by God in vengeance, and the cities are estimated to have been destroyed about that same time, 2300 to 2400 B.C., Archaeology has proven that Sodom and Gomorrah was not a myth, but was a real, two real cities. Jesus said, if my disciples don't testify about me, the rocks will cry out. I never thought of it as maybe archaeology. You know, the archaeologists are discovering that the rocks are crying out and giving testimony that the Bible is true, that God is true. You know, when comedian W.C. Fields, uh, you know, W.C. Fields, some, some of you remember him, uh, when he was on his deathbed, he was found reading the Bible, and somebody asked him, hey, W.C., I, I didn't think you believed in the Bible. And he said, I don't, I'm just looking for loopholes. <laughs> you know, you can spend your whole life looking for loopholes, or you can just accept God's word by faith. You know, I've given a lot of evidence today uh, that I think, to me, strengthens my faith and maybe can help someone that is really skeptical come closer to believing the Bible. But really, it all comes down to faith. Um, we're not going to understand everything. Uh, if you understand everything, you don't need faith, right? 
we're not going to understand everything, but the Bible says without faith it's impossible to, to please God. And so, you know, our salvation depends on not the evidence. The evidence strengthens our faith, but our salvation depends on our faith in God. Robert Folgram wrote in, in a book entitled All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. You might have heard that. And, and you know what? There's a sense in which all you've ever needed to know from sal- about salvation you learn in the preschool class at church. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The message of that song, uh, you know, it may not impress the agnostic scholar uh, uh, from from the university. But, I mean, let's think about it. Who are we trying to impress here? Who are we trying to impress here? Ephesians 1.13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So that's what we believe here at Stony Brook. We believe that the word of God that the Bible is the word of God. God breathed. And so, do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope you do. Because there's so many reasons to answer. Yes, I do. I do. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, you are the kind of God that, that uh, desires to communicate with us. You didn't just leave us hanging. You, we don't have to sit around and guess, you know, what's this all about? What's what, what do you want from me? Um, we don't have to go out in the woods and try to figure it out. We can just open up your word. And you've provided it for us. You've protected it through the centuries, through the millenniums. Um, and we can look at the evidence and see your miracles are protect, protecting the Bible. And so help us to embrace it as your word and take it seriously and apply it to our lives. And then, Lord, maybe some of these things can help us as we talk to our friends and family members who are skeptical because there are so many, more and more and more people out there are skeptical that the Bible is your word. Um, but there's no reason for them to be. And we, maybe we have some things today that we can share with them that can help. And so um, thank you for your word and for, and for its purpose in our lives to change our lives, to show us you, to show us salvation. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.